Christmas has a wonderful way of putting people in contact with the mystery of God's love. A good number of years back, Harriet and I were with friends at Orchestra Hall in Minneapolis for Handel's Messiah, and as the first section ended and the applause died down um, for, uh, for the intermission, there was a woman sitting right behind us who turned to the lady sitting next to her and said, wasn't that just beautiful? It almost makes you want to become a Christian. As a pastor, I couldn't help but overhear those words. Now, maybe those women were of Jewish heritage or even some other religion or, or not religious at all, but clearly they were without a relationship with Jesus as Savior. And although the music and the season put them in touch with the mystery of God's love in Jesus, they were not yet able to receive it. And they were missing the most wonderful part of the music and the season. The wonderful part is to know personally Jesus, Messiah, the one we sing about. Not just to know about him as a baby in a manger, but to know him personally. To know him in here as Savior and Master and Lord of our lives. To experience his grace and power within our lives. Today, I want you to look with me at the characters in one of the scenes of the great drama of the birth of Jesus. It's an exciting chapter in the story. Here, there are not only heroes, but villains and archvillains, all who come into contact with the mystery of God's love, but not all were able to receive it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Take your Bibles and turn there, please. We're going to read this great text here today. And as we look, be alert to the fact that there are characters in this story that may be a lot like us. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all of the... Next slide, please chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Who are the personalities in this scene? Well, in verse 1, we meet, with, uh, we meet the mystery characters. And even though at times uh, they are the main actors on stage, we don't know much about them at all, the wise men. And that's given rise to a, a lot of fancy fiction, sometimes uh, just great stories. One that I love is called The Other Wise Man by Henry Van Dyke. But there's lots of myths and traditions, ideas from the Middle Ages that have come down to us. Uh, they say that there were three of them. Well, there's three of them in our manger scene, you say. But that idea probably comes from the number of their gifts, gold frankincense, and myrrh. We really don't know how many wise men came to Jesus. Tradition also tells us that they were kings. As the song says, we three kings of Orient are. That idea comes from the richness of their gifts, but they were not kings at all. The Bible calls them wise men, magi. Medieval tradition even gives them names, Casper, Melchior, Balthazar. But in the Bible, they're not named at all. Mythical tradition went so far as to encourage you to go to the cathedral in Cologne, Germany and look at their bones in a shrine. I've been to that cathedral several times, but I don't believe it. It's just superstition. Who were these wise men? What's the truth behind the myth. Well, wise men is the English translation of the Greek word magoi or magi. They were a special class of priests in ancient Persian religion. They were astrologers, fortune tellers, who interpreted dreams and read the stars. They studied the night sky, believing that the movements of the stars and the planets showed signs of what was happening and what was going to happen in their world. Actually, that is not something that uh, God wants us to do. In fact, God's word warns us uh, about uh, astrologers and psychics. Why? Because they steal away our trust in the Lord. It's interesting, however, that these men, Gentiles, pagans, actually trusting in the stars, not knowing God, find their way to Jesus and appear in this wonderful story of his nativity. Verse 1 tells us they came from the east. Again, we can't be sure, but Persia, Iraq, Iran is a good guess where they came from. I read just this past week another theory that they were Nabataeans from today's region of Jordan that would be east of Israel. We really don't know. We do know from the text that somehow a star or a special alignment of planets caught their attention. Look at verse 2. 
Somehow, this sign let them know that a new Jewish baby had been born, a baby that was to be Messiah and King. And so they come boldly to Jerusalem saying, where's your new king? We've come to do him honor and worship. And they expected, as we would expect, the Jews to know if their prince had been born. They came to Jerusalem, capital city, right up to the palace gates. Where else would a baby prince be born, right? But there's no baby in the palace. In fact, nobody knew about this at all. Verse 3 when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Kind of a strange reaction, don't you think? It literally means that the king and the whole city just panicked. They were terrified. Why? Well, history helps us out with this second character in the story. And we do know a lot about King Herod how a Gentile himself was appointed by the Romans to be a king of the Jews. But Herod was a tyrant, an evil king, intensely jealous, suspicious that somebody, anybody might steal his kingdom away from him. To say that he was paranoid, that would be an understatement. He'd already had one of his wives killed, along with her brother-in-law and three of her cousins, all because he thought she was a threat to him. In another incident of intrigue, he, he ordered two of his own children murdered because there was a hint that they might depose him. This wicked, evil king, so selfish, so arrogant, that anyone got, who got in his way, he simply eliminated, and often innocent bystanders got caught in the crossfire. So here come wise men saying, where's the new king? The whole city panics. They knew Herod well. What did Herod do? He called together the religious leaders, the Bible scholars, the scribes, those who had all the Bible prophecies stored away in their minds. He asked them to find out where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And these scribes, the third characters we meet on stage, did what Bible, Bible scholars are supposed to do. They quoted the Bible. And they said, well, King, if Messiah is to be born, it will probably be in a little town seven miles south of here because the prophet Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come to me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now Herod, that sly old fox, did something sneaky, crafty as always. He called the wise men secretly and told them where to go. But before that, he asked them when the sign appeared. Because if the star appeared when the child was born, he could know how old he might be. And he said to them, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And as the wise men left Jerusalem, again they saw the star in the sky. 
And verse 10 gives us another little peek into these guys' hearts. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It literally means they were so excited they couldn't hold it in. And when they found the house of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, not the stable any longer, Jesus may have been two years old by now, there they opened their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, worshiping him. Can you see that in your mind's eye? It is helpful to have those little characters on our tabletop, isn't it? Verse 12 tells us how God warned them not to go back to Herod. Verse 13 tells us how God warned Joseph in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt. They did in the middle of the night, none too quickly, in just the nick of time, because now we see Herod's real plans. He's not interested in worshiping Jesus. He'd rather kill him. And being the snake he was, Herod swept down on that little town of Bethlehem with all of his troops still in the quiet of the night, and they killed every boy baby that was under two years old. While protected by God, Jesus was already on his way with Mary and Joseph into Egypt. Well, that's the story and the characters as they unfold. But I want to say it's not just a story. God has a plan and God has something to say to us. His wisdom is for your life. Did you notice how differently people respond to God's work and God's word in the story? What an interesting set of characters. Herod, the Bible scholars, the wise men. Herod, first of all, what a fool. Trying to stand in the way of God's work, God's will, what a fool. He's the best example I know of someone who says, I'm the boss around here. I've got plans. I've got mine and nobody, not God, no one will get in the way. God may have a plan, but I don't care. It's my way or no way. Herod heard the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. He heard about God's plan in the birth of Jesus, but Herod not only hated God's plan, he actively tried to destroy it. Herod, arrogant, hypocritical, dishonest and cruel, but above all, self-centered. He could have come to Bethlehem to worship and adore. He could have been the first king to bow before the king of kings. But in his obsession to protect his own crumbling sandcastle, he's remembered in history as one of the cruelest tyrants of all time. What he doesn't know is that he's just about two years away from his own death. Soon he was going to step into eternity. And when he died, a horrible death, by the way, nobody mourned him. Everybody breathed a sigh of relief, glad he was gone. You say, wait a minute, preacher. Nobody could be that bad. Well, Herod did do some good things. He was a Gentile who became a Jew. We don't know why, really. 
But let's assume that at one time he was attracted to the God of Scripture, the truth of God's Word. Maybe at one time in his life he did want to worship the one true God. Herod built a beautiful temple for God in Jerusalem. God's people had been worshiping in a puny, crumbling temple that was 500 years old. Herod built them a new house of worship, built it with his own money. He built wonderful aqueducts to bring water to the people of the desert. He built gorgeous and glorious cities. Don't those good works count for something? Well, perhaps so. But when his own little kingdom was threatened, when he thought he might have to fit into God's plan rather than getting God to fit into his plans, Herod showed his true colors. I know people like that, don't you? People who want to use God rather than follow God. They don't mind a little bit of religion or having God as their backup parachute. Let's keep God handy just in case we need him. I'd like God to bless what I want to do, but let God expect something of me. Let God try to be God with expectations of how they live or what they do. And they'll tell God to take a hike. Herod was a fool. And there are a lot like him. Because Jesus came not to be king of a stable, but to be king of your life. We call him Lord, but Lord means master, ruler, boss, leader of my life, the only worthy leader to be followed. The second characters in the story were the religious leaders, the Bible scholars, the scribes, the teachers of the law. Verse 4, what do we know about them? Well, these guys had their heads chucked full of the Bible. They know it all. They have more scripture memorized than you ever thought possible. They could talk for hours on end about fancy theology and, and deep thoughts. One of their favorite topics was what it would mean and what it would be like if Messiah would come. What would it be like to live in his kingdom? They were even quite sure they knew where Christ would be born. But when they had opportunity to go see for themselves, to bow and worship at the Savior's side, they stayed home. For them, religion was an intellectual exercise, a mind game rather than heart-level, real-life experience. And I know people like that, don't you? They think what it means to be spiritual is to have a lot of Bible tucked in their heads, to be able to win Bible quizzes and how many verses they can quote or how many religious principles they can explain or how well they live by the rules. What they don't fully realize is that you can know it all and still have an empty heart. You can have an amazing Bible knowledge, but without any vitality or life, no presence of Jesus in the heart. And that's a great temptation, isn't it? 
to substitute religious performance for genuine intimacy with God, loving Him and being loved by Him. It's tempting to be satisfied with head knowledge instead of a transformed life. It's easy to substitute an intellectual religion for that simple walk of faith, living with Jesus. Jesus didn't come to give us something to talk about. Jesus came so that you could experience and know God personally in a way that changes you from the inside out. They were so proud that they knew Micah 5.2. Bethlehem is where he'll be born. But they missed just a few verses later where God says, here's what it's about, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Christianity is not a mind game. It's not a Sunday exercise. It's living life in intimate fellowship with God, humbly walking with God. This may shock you, but the guy I know who has the most Bible in his head and understands way more theology than I'll ever know, isn't walking with God. He's one of the most carnal, disobedient, and lifeless Christians I've ever met. My heart breaks for him. He thinks knowing in his head is what it means to be spiritual. But it's all just window dressing around an empty heart. And one of the most simple, uncomplicated people I have ever known. He's got a ninth grade education. He'd never make it in college or seminary. His mind doesn't think deep thoughts. He's one of the most godly, spiritually alive men I've ever met. He's living and enjoying what my other friend is only thinking. He's experiencing what my other friend is only imagining. Don't substitute some performance religion for the real thing. A real intimate walk with Jesus. Just to know His presence. Just to live in fellowship with Him. Just to let Him love you and love Him in return. To let Him be Lord. To stay pliable and moldable and, and ready for what He wants to do next in your life. To let the Lord be Lord. That's the real thing. And there's no substitute for that. And let's have just one last look at the wise men. So much could be said about their simple expectation for God to guide them. We could talk about the excellence and the value of the gifts that they brought. They spared no cost because Jesus deserves our best. 
We could talk about their excitement to follow step by step where God was leading them. But let me just give you three thoughts about the mystery of Jesus coming and how God reaches out to pursue a relationship with us. Because God is the real hero in this story. His love is the central theme. First, God does not hide his guidance from anyone who sincerely wants to follow him. The Magi had no qualifications to be at the Messiah's cradle side. They were pagans for sure. Their trade and their craft are, are questionable to say the least. They were from a race of people the Jews despised. They were absolutely ignorant to what those religious leaders would have tell them spirituality required. And yet God led them and welcomed them at the side of the Savior. They had no qualifications except a passionate heart to find the Lord and a willingness to follow the light that they had seen. Do you want to know and follow Jesus better? Does your heart long to be closer? Are you hungry for the abundant life he promises? Is that the driving passion of your heart? Then you can trust God will show you the path. He'll point out the way if you're determined to follow. If you're only curious about God's will, if you want only a Sunday go to meet in Christianity, God will leave you with that kind of emptiness. But if you are hungry, God, I want you. God, I need you. I'll follow you regardless. No matter where you're starting from, he will take you by the hand and draw you to the Savior's side. Second thought, God will go to extremes to show us his will and his way. God loves to let us in on the sweetness of adventuring life with him. God is not trying to obscure his will. And if ordinary ways are not enough to show us his pathway, he'll use supernatural, extraordinary ways to help us follow him, provided that we really will obey. If you're determined to follow, he's determined to show you his will. Thirdly, and even more importantly, when you follow and act on what God has already shown you, He's promised to show you the next step. The star may disappear for a moment. It might get confusing as God is bringing together the rest of his plan. It may seem like this part of the journey is a desert, like you can't see the path. That's the time to rest and relax. By faith, trust him and let yourself sit by the side of the road and wait until he shows you what's next. The star will reappear. He won't leave you stuck and confused. The wise, the wise still seek him. 
They seek him with everything they know and with every fiber of their being. And here at the end of your sermon outline, I've, I've given you several key verses to increase your faith that God is for you and that he will be faithful to direct your steps. These are glorious promises. Isaiah 42, 16, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. The blind, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I do not forsake them. Luke chapter 1, it's going to say Matthew up on the screen, but that's the wrong text. The tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isaiah 43 when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Christmas may be for you that time when you come into unusual contact with the mystery of God's love. Many people enjoy the moment and then push God off into a corner of their lives. Others look and intellectualize. Oh, I know that story. I know all about that. But you can experience the power of the love of God invading your heart and transforming your life from the inside out if you'll lean into the journey as you pursue Jesus. Let's pray. God, some of us here know this story so well. Some of us have read it again and again and again. And God, we are not content to leave it in the realm of thoughts, ideas. We are hungry that your word would impact our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, today, we thank you for coming to planet Earth to show us how to live and to give your life as a ransom for our sinful souls. We are so grateful to be able to look up to you and say, God, save me. And you've promised that you will. And we would follow Jesus. Not just as those who, who know a lot of things, but as those who Grant you the right to be master and Lord of our lives. We thank you. We praise you. We worship and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.